0: Father, we're grateful as the spring progresses to see the world coming alive around us, and we know that that's a picture of your great work, not only in creation, but in redemption. And we too pray that you would bring us more and more alive unto Christ and uh, You would use your word to that end by the power of the Spirit, and as we undertake this great study of uh, summaries of your word's teaching, uh, we pray that um, this rich consideration would uh, strengthen our faith, would stir our hearts, and that we would be better enabled to worship you and love and serve you in this world. And we pray it for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we're undertaking the second part of our um, uh, study. We've done government and discipline, and now we're taking up doctrine and worship. And uh, to that end, we're going to study the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Westminster Larger and Shorter Catechism. But our emphasis will be on the Confession of Faith. Um, I hope you all received the, um, reading list and, um, this is (laughs) impossibly, uh, intense, um, schedule. We're, uh, to meet, um, seven times and, uh, the last time I taught this, I had 15 weeks. (laughs) So, uh. We're going to be moving along, Um, I am not going to be able to give uh, very extensive exposition of the materials. What I'm going to depend upon is that you read them and that you come with things that are of concern to you that I can focus on. Uh, I've taught the course probably five, six times. So I'm very familiar with the material. So I, I, I would like to be able to use you all as a guide. You see, in the reading requirements, you're to read carefully and thoughtfully, uh, look up the scripture texts, um, and find them in context. I'll, I'll say something more about the proofs. Uh, take note, particularly, of any terms that you don't understand. There are archaic terms in the Confession of Faith and Catechisms. Now, the nice thing is that in Chad's commentary, if you're reading along in that, he does have a contemporary version of the Confession of Faith printed alongside the original, um, and that can be a help. It's a kind of paraphrase of it in more contemporary language and uh, syntax. Um, the um, So... Uh, And and please take note of any questions you have um, during your readings so that we can take them up. That'll be the first thing. Um, And occasionally I'll have things to add to um, the Van Dixhorn readings and I'll attach them the week before. I meant to um, attach a wonderful little piece that we have on our website, but I'll just mention it to you if you're interested B.B. Warfield wrote a, or it was an address that he gave in the early part of the 20th century called uh, The Significance of the Westminster Standards um, as a, uh, or the Confession of Faith as a Creed. I think that was the title, but you'll see it under Warfield. It's listed alphabetically. And I I think you'd find that very, very interesting to read. I also sent out for tonight a little paper that I did on uh, this chapter one, section one. Um, And additionally, a very interesting discussion from a pamphlet that A. A. Hodge and B. B. Warfield put together um, on the doctrine of inerrancy, which is of itself worth reading, but um, a nice little excerpt. So tonight, um what i want to do is uh set the historical stage for the confession of faith and catechisms and then take up the first chapter and we'll be picking up the pace uh from there on chapters but um any questions about anything thus far in the uh readings um or any anything of that sort all right um yes
1: You have to be fast on the unmute button. Um, If this is out of order, uh, please let me know. I was looking at my Westminster Confession of Faith, which is the publication that you recommended. It's a PCA publication, and yet I turned to the copyright, and it turns out that it was written or copyrighted by the OPC, prepared by the OPC Committee on Christian Education, it strikes me that if we are consonant with the o, so consonant with the OPC that we can adopt their publication of the confession and the larger and shorter catechisms. We're um, pretty tight, right? <laughs> um, I
0: think that, that I think that would be fair to say. Um, the. Um, I have made my copy loose leaf and I don't think I have any of the title page materials anymore. Um, the, um, so I can't tell you about the copyright, uh, 2007
1: and eight by the OPC. Yeah. Prepared by the committee on Christian education of the OPC
0: but in any case the the if you wanted to try and set it in a historical setting the OPC would be uh the continuity into the 20th century of the old northern old school northern presbyterian tradition and the PCA would be a representative of the old school southern presbyterian tradition and uh at one time, that was one tradition. It was just the old school t- tradition. A split took place in the war. And um, the uh, there were differences, and the differences have uh, um, grown a little greater, not lesser. But in any case, we are very, very close. They certainly hold to... Um, they, they think of themselves, I think, as probably stricter or more faithful uh, to the confession, and they uh, probably raise an eyebrow once in a while about whether we're too um, loose. But uh, otherwise, in, in terms of the actual doctrine, um, they'd be very, very close. Okay, I appreciate
1: that. And again, I'm sorry
0: if I... No, no, that's, it's very interesting.
1: I thought it was striking...
0: Yes. Yeah. I know our version of the confession came from the Southern Church's version. Um, I believe in uh as the text was settled in uh nineteen thirty six. But I'd have to you know, there have been modern changes. At, but the OPs and the PCA went back behind the modern changes because they didn't think they were uh, much use, not an improvement, but a a, uh, deprovement. All right, well, uh, the Westminster Standard's in the making. Let me just make a couple of comments. Um, The great battle in uh, historic Christianity in the post-apostolic period uh, finally comes to be between Um, Pelagianism and Augustinianism. Augustine, the great, great theologian of that early period, uh, in many ways fully capturing the Pauline uh, gospel of grace and the marvel of a sovereign God. Uh, Pelagius, a British monk, utterly opposed to that um, and really wanted to heighten uh, the capacity of men and women and um, between Pelagianism which was never fully embraced but semi-Pelagianism which did capture much of uh, Roman Catholic theology. Um, by the time of the Reformation uh, in terms of uh, the um, hierarchy of the church semi-pelagian, semi-Pelagianism was triumphant, Um, and Augustinianism was in decline. At the same time, there was massive moral corruption in the church, particularly in the hierarchy, Uh, abuse of power, abuse of funds, uh, and utterly immoral living, you know, celibate priests having multiple children and so on. Throughout the Middle Ages there were reform movements, particularly moral reform movements, because it was really, for anybody who had any moral sensibility, it was just nauseating how um, rampant the corruption was. But the movements that dealt with reform only were never successful and because of the alignment between church and state The civil arm was always used to stamp out um, the reform movements. The remarkable thing that took place in the 16th century was the realization, uh, somewhat simultaneously on the part of many, that it wasn't just going to be a matter of moral reform, that you had to get to the root of the matter, which was the doctrinal decay of the worship and discipleship of the Roman Church. And what that was, was a revival of Augustinianism. Um, Now, as as I say, it had never been stamped out entirely, and in fact, I want to mention, in 1344, uh, there was um, a, a, a man called Thomas Bradwardine, an extraordinary man in England. He ended up being Archbishop of Canterbury, he died promptly as soon as he was made Archbishop. But he was called Dr. Profundus, the profound doctor. And he published a book called De Causa Dei contra, um, well, the English would be In Defense of God Against the Pelagians, a massive work, which was part of a revival of Augustinianism on the part of a gigantic mind. Uh, today, if Bradwardine is read at all, Uh, It's his works in theoretical mathematics. They're still read in graduate programs uh, in Oxford and Cambridge and MIT and so on. A remarkable man. Um, And in 1380, John Wycliffe in England uh, is working on translations. He is too in the Augustinian tradition, and he finally brings out an English Bible, uh, which has tremendous impact and these are kind of background movements, scripture and Augustinianism, uh, that were setting the stage in England for reform. By um, 1509, Henry VIII is king, and you know uh, that um, he <laughs> uh, had trouble with his wives and uh It was just much easier to get a divorce if he didn't have to worry about the Pope. So he thought, I'll just be head of the church in England, and that way I can give myself a divorce any time I need one. And um, so the reform movement in England was at first um, not really a doctrinal matter nor a moral matter. It was a political matter. But at the same time, 1517, you have the Greek New Testament that Erasmus publishes, which stirs up uh, the study of scriptures on the part of these uh, Renaissance humanist scholars, their their uh, motto, ad fontes, back to the sources. All of a sudden, they're reading the thing in Greek, and it's the accretions from the Latin translations were dropping off. Um, and two extraordinary men come to the foreground, Martin Luther, Um, born in 1483 but in uh, 1517 his 95 theses are published and then uh, in 1536 John Calvin's Institutes is first published uh, a a massive restatement of Augustinian thought Luther did not write systematically typically uh, but more tracts and uh, uh, treatises Um, and uh, you probably saw in your introduction to the uh, PCA version of the Confession of Faith and Catechisms that the author of the introduction wants to say, and I think this is perfectly accurate, that Luther and Calvin represent two great types of reform from this period. Uh, the first, Luther, moderate reform. Now that may sound uh, <laughs> uh, extraordinary, <laughs> because if, if you've read any Luther, he, he doesn't sound moderate. <laughs> he can be bombastic and uh, brash, and um, he was a pretty fiery fellow. But nevertheless, he wanted to pursue what was properly uh, denominated a moderate form. That is, he wanted to retain as much as possible of the life of the church uh, in the late medieval tradition, as much as possible, uh, so long as it was not something that was forbidden by the word, that was his key. If it seemed helpful and and it help, helped with continuity, we keep it uh, unless it's forbidden and Luther's influence was strongest in northern Germany and Scandinavia. Calvin, on the other hand, is representative of uh, what would be a more thoroughgoing reform, where Calvin's principle was bring everything into conformity with the word of God, the word which is a sufficient rule of faith and practice. And every part of Christian teaching of, of the life of the church he thought should be brought back into conformity with the word. And his influence was greatest in uh, Switzerland, France, Netherlands, and uh, southern Germany in certain places. Um, the, the second thing to note to set the stage is this becomes the great creed-making age. Because they're having this re- revival of understanding of the gospel and theology they're needing to state it in simple forms that can be communicated. And, of course, the press makes that possible. Um, and so um, we'll see here that uh, confession after confession after confession is produced. Um, and what I want to argue, and I'll say now by way of anticipation, what one of the things that makes uh, Westminster... Um, a an extraordinary document is because it as it it is um, at the pinnacle of that creed making age. All of the experience, all of the controversies, all of the honing uh, comes into fruition uh, at uh, Westminster. Um. So, reform in England. Early, you see it was uh, partly political, but at the same time, Luther's thought was um, uh, making way. um, In fact, folks were considered Lutherans if they were part of the reform movement at that period in in Henry's reign. Scotland was a little different. Uh, Scotland um, had come more into contact with Calvin and the great George Wishart, Uh, um, he was born in 1513 uh, was very familiar with Calvin's teaching, brought it to Scotland and he was very very influential as a preacher John Knox was his disciple Knox we think of as the pinnacle of Scottish Reformed uh, period Uh, and although Worship was one of the first Protestant martyrs he was burned to death as a heretic at St. Andrews in 1546 but, so, England was the more moderate uh, Lutheran, um, whereas Scotland was much more under the influence of Calvin from the beginning. They put the two nations in tension. Nevertheless, uh, there were extraordinary uh, uh, theologians. Um, uh, Cramner, for example, and um, it, by 1553 he puts together uh, what originally was called the 42 Articles, but later uh, was revised and became the 39 Articles, which was a fundamentally Calvinistic creed for the Church of England. Um, and he also prepared the Book of uh, Common Prayer. This is now, by the time of Edward VI's reign, um, in the middle of uh, the 16th century. Uh, uh Henry's Catholic daughter comes to the throne in 1555 and she of course isn't enthusiastic about a moderate reform or any reform, she wants to restore Roman Catholicism. Um, In the meantime in 1555 John Knox returns to Scotland from Geneva to take up the work of reform there Uh, and uh, Cramner, although he was a a moderate man in many ways, nevertheless falls afoul of Mary's reforms and he's burned at the stake as well in 1556. So when Elizabeth comes to the throne in 1558, the two types of reform, the more moderate and the more thoroughgoing, are clearly at play among the people under her domain. And that tension is going to come uh, and grow. She's trying to control it. She doesn't want to favor either side because she needs both sides for her uh, military expeditions. Um, but um, uh, Knox writes a confession in 1560 called the Scots Confession. Ursinus and Elevianus, uh in 1562 put together the Heidelberg Catechism, Roman Catholics get involved in the matter in 1556, uh, with the canons and decrees of the Council of Trent. Uh, So by the time of the turn of the century now, Elizabeth is gone, but the the movement of the thoroughgoing reform that grew up under her reign uh, came to be called Puritanism because they wanted to purify the church. Uh, there was great hope with James I, but that didn't last um, but in sixteen fourteen uh, a theologian called William Twiss, or Twissa um, he would s- soon be the prolocutor of the general Asse- uh, the, of the Westminster assembly, it's sort of the moderator of it and Twissa republishes Bradwardine's De causa dei. So, you see, from centuries ago, he's finding Augustinian giants, and the republication is a part of this movement for, for more thoroughgoing reform. Um, the uh, uh, A wonderful uh, Irish theologian, Bishop Usher, um, published his, his Irish articles in 1615, and by sixteen eighteen and nineteen, we had the canons from the Synod of Dort and the controversies that grew up there. So do you see this is an impulse, and it 's going on in many different places by people of varying abilities but usher 's work uh, usually it 's a some kind of a council this was uh, his Irish articles were his work alone, and Westminster was profoundly influenced by his Irish articles well um, Charles I. Uh, follows James, um, and Charles I the first, uh, was just about exactly the wrong man uh, at the wrong time. Um, the tensions have been growing and growing and growing between Parliament, which tended to be on the more th- thoroughgoing side with, in terms of reform, and the Crown, which was, tended to be on the extremely moderate side of reform. Sometimes it was hard to tell whether they were actually wanting to get uh, back to Roman Catholicism. And so there are a lot of people who are unhappy with Charles, and that leads to folk leaving the country. Uh, the Puritans settled in Massachusetts in 1630 uh, to be done with that controversy. But uh, a parliament is called in 1640, and uh, The king tries to shut it down, but they're having none of it, and uh, Civil War breaks out in 1642. Um, It's in the midst of the English Civil War that Parliament realizes that they've got to do something to unify the three kingdoms theologically and ecclesiologically. Uh, And so, um, in... uh, 1643, a year end of the uh, Civil War, they call for an assembly of divines uh, to reform the English church. At first, they're assigned simply to revise the 39 articles, but they start into the project, and they realize that it's not going to work, and so they decide they're going to pitch it and start all over again. Um, the uh, So on July 1st of 1643, Parliament convenes an assembly of 120 divines. That's what a theologian was called in those days. And um, by September, uh, commissioners came from the Scottish Church. They were appointed because of the Solemn League and Covenant to be part of this reforming work. And the Scottish commissioners were extraordinarily influential uh, uh, given the paucity of their numbers. Their influence was considerably beyond that. By uh, uh, 1648, um, there's uh, the, the process of adopting the Westminster Standards by Parliament was completed. Um, the documents produced by the Assembly, I, I meant to tell you that it's the Westminster Assembly because they met at Westminster Abbey, that's where the name came from. They produced the Confession of Faith 33 articles, or chapters we call them, uh, giving a succinct statement of every major important teaching of the Bible. And Warfield put it this way, The Westminster Confession owes its preeminence among Reformed confessions, not not only in, in fullness, but also in exactitude and richness of statement It owes this merely to the fact that it is the ripest fruit of Reformed creed-making. The simple transcript of Reformed thought, as it was everywhere expounded by its best representatives in the middle of the 17th century. I think that is a a perfectly accurate um, statement. They produced a larger catechism, which was uh, uh, to be for adults and theological students in preparation of 196 questions. The shorter catechism was to be for young people. 107 questions. They were based on a traditional form uh, where uh, effectively you'd have a kind of exposition of the Apostles' Creed. Uh, You would then have uh, a um, uh, recitation as to the meaning of the Ten Commandments, and then you would have a study of the Lord's Prayer. That pattern was a catech- catech- pattern from of of long standing and both catechisms followed that pattern um, They also produced a, a directory for public worship a directory for family worship, which is really quite wonderful and then um, a document called the sum of saving, saving knowledge was an attempt to put uh, in fairly brief order uh, the essential characteristics of the gospel um, the Church of England never adopted the Westminster Standards, Um, but the uh, Church of Scotland uh, adopted them, and in 1647, in 1649, Charles was executed, and uh, you had the period of the Commonwealth. Uh, Oliver Cromwell installed as uh, Lord Protector from 1649 to 1660, and... um, The Commonwealth, uh, among the uh, folk at the assembly, there was uh, uh, some division as to church government. There was a very, very strong group of independents, and there was a strong group of Presbyterians. That's why the Westminster Confession itself is a little waffly on... uh, ecclesiology and why in Scotland they adopted a book of church order which set for, forth their conception of the doctrine of church government to go along with the confession of faith when they adopted it so they kind of put their doctrine of the church in their book of church order um, the, uh, but the, in the main parliament favored the independents and so during the Commonwealth period, uh, there was no interest in adopting uh, a- anything that smacked of Presbyterianism. And um, that led to uh, Presbyterian folk um, wanting to go to the new world. And so I'm, I'll, f- I'll finish my story on this point with just noticing that um, Charles II is restored to the throne in 1660, and, uh, By 1683, there are Presbyterian people who are living all up and down the Delmarva Peninsula, uh, farming and so on, who have escaped uh, both the Commonwealth and the Restoration. And um, they uh, send home to England for uh, or to Great Britain for a minister. There's a group of Scottish people living in Ireland called the Ulster Scots or the Scotch-Irish. The Presbytery there hears of it, and they send uh, Francis McKemmy to the Delmarva Peninsula in 1683, and he plants, uh, I think it was as many as 13 churches uh, among uh, uh, folks there, Presbyterians there, who had fled at the Restoration by 16. By 1706, there's enough churches to start a presbytery. They have the first meeting of that presbytery in Philadelphia in that year. And by 1629, uh, that presbytery adopts the Westminster Standards as the doctrinal uh, symbol of the American Presbyterian Church. And that's how the standards come to us. Uh, And it's remarkable that from 1643, 1743, 1843, 1843, uh, what we're, we're talking about, uh, for some centuries, a document produced in the midst of a civil war and huge theological controversy. And it is still the statement of how the scripture is understood by English speaking Presbyterians all over the world, uh, New Zealand, Scotland, South Africa, um, uh, in the United States, Canada. So it, it is quite a remarkable document and well worth uh, our careful attention, uh, not only because of its historical ped- pedigree, but uh, for its longevity. So let me uh, stop there just briefly and see if anybody has a question or comment about that. I hope it was helpful for you to get a little bit more of a... Uh, rootedness in history Uh, all right
2: no question that's just always wonderful to hear it's really great context to then dive in the confession
0: all right Paul thank you well um, first we're going to take up chapter 1 it's worth noticing that um, chapter 1 of the confession is relatively unusual in creed making um, the if you think of the Apostles' Creed, um, I believe in God the Father Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. It's quite common that a confession or a creed would begin with uh, the doctrine of God, and then work its way through in a kind of almost historic redemptive fashion to the elements of the gospel, and, and then you get to, uh, uh believing in the church and s- so on. Westminster starts with the doctrine of scripture. And that is a very distinct representation of the whole idea of thoroughgoing reform that grew up out of Calvin and came into its fullest, uh, flower, uh, among the Westminster divines, everything was based on Scripture. If the reform of the church and its, and its worship and its gospel is going to take place, it has to be founded in the Scripture. It's reformation according to the Word of God. And so the Word of God is where you have to begin. And I think that's quite striking, even in the form of the confession of faith. Now, this chapter is divided, although um, uh, it may not be apparent, but 1-1 is a different topic than everything that follows. The chapter is of the Holy Scriptures, but 1-1 uh, talks about first what we would call general revelation. The Holy Scripture, we typically call special revelation general revelation is called uh, that because it's available to everyone and uh, it is through everything whereas special revelation is only available to those to whom it comes addressing particular concerns and circumstances um, and and But there's a critical and important connection between general revelation and special revelation. And that's why the designs, divines start here. And there are two two, uh, or or three um, things that uh, we want to focus on in particular. It begins talking about the light of nature and the work of creation And providence. The light of nature is um, uh, the inner light that a person created in the image of God has by reflecting upon himself and the world. Uh, It's nearly equivalent to the idea of conscience. And the works of creation and providence, these are the outer things in the Word. So it's the inner world and the outer world. And they start by saying that both of them, who I am when I look at myself and the way the world is manifests the goodness, wisdom, and power of God. No doubt. That's all of that information is there. And Between them, Providence, creation and Providence, makes an impression on conscience that I'm a creature and I have an obligation to acknowledge the Creator. Um, This is Paul's argument in Romans 1, of course. But now, they're not going to develop all this, they'll get to it, but What this does now is leave people inexcusable. It starts out with the premise that there's a connection between knowledge and responsibility. The knowledge is there, you have the responsibility, but you're not exercising it. And so what general revelation does is renders everyone inexcusable. Now notice this special revelation is going to come into the world and we'll see their explanation of why. But um, the uh, special revelation isn't available to everybody. And since the whole premise is that knowledge brings responsibility, if you don't have the knowledge, how could you be responsible for it? So special revelation seems to undermine that connection but the point is that nobody is going to be um, accosted for not following special revelation that they never had what they will be responsible for is the revelation they did have in creation and providence and in their own self-consciousness and that's going to be the basis of their judgment. And that's a crucial point in Reformed theology. It's a crucial point in biblical theology. And, uh, and, and, there, but, and the fact is, though, that those things are not sufficient, creation and providence and light of nature, are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and his will, which is necessary to salvation. Um, why? Because we're fallen. And we don't want God in our thinking. And we're going to suppress the truth and unrighteousness and exchange it for a lie. There's going to have to be another message come, and that message isn't found here, and the message that is is rejected because of our sinfulness. So, it pleased the Lord, what? In various times and in various ways, he revealed himself to declare his will to the church um, God's breaking into the world now not through creation and providence not through the inner, inner light and testimony of my own self-consciousness but rather he's sending messengers to say here is a message from me I want you to understand that my mind and will with respect to you is for your good um, and that's the whole history of special revelation, um, the special revelation that's given to Adam and Eve, that they're not going to die, but rather be preserved. And from time to time, not regularly, but at key points in redemptive history, God breaks in and a, a messenger is sent. And there are... Uh, um, Three characteristics. One, the messenger is claiming to be from God, and God authenticates that claim by the miraculous, by signs and wonders. Uh, If we jump to the New Testament, Nicodemus understood this. We know you're a teacher sent from God, for no one could do the things you do lest God were with him. Two, That message has to do with God's redemptive plan in some way or another. And it's spoken to advance that redemption. Three, it is then preserved as part of the rule of the life of that people who have received the message. Part of uh, their understanding of the world and the way they understand their relationship to the God who revealed himself. And the divines then say, these all end up being uh, um, committed wholly unto writing. So it can be better preserved, better spread, uh, in order for the it, it to be well established in the church, and we would find comfort there. Um, God decided to commit the whole unto writing. Which they conclude makes the Holy Scripture most necessary because there's no other place to find this redemptive revelation of God. Um, Why is there no other place to find it? This is the last sentence. That's a crucial sentence for um, Reformed theology. Those former ways of God revealing his will to his people are now ceased. There's no more redemptive acts. Jesus Christ is the last great act of redemptive history and his apostles are sent as the messengers to explain that act. No more redemptive acts. No more redemptive revelation then that give an account of its meaning. And thus, the scripture is, um, the way we talk about it, the word canon. Uh, the canon, uh, canon means rule. Um and it, it comes here to mean the the rule that the books of the Bible constitute for the community. Um and given that there is no more redemptive act, no more redemptive interpretation that's divinely authenticated, uh the canon is closed. It's not just because there's a a back cover uh <laughs> sewn into the book. It's because there is no availability of any more chapters. <laughs> the whole process is finished. And uh, th- so that's the fir- first chapter, and I would say one of the most important chapters in the Confession of Faith and Catechisms. It sets the stage virtually for everything else. Anybody a question on on that? All right. Here I'm going to, and I I hope you'll have a chance. I try to. Yes.
2: uh, I I did have a question, and it it may be more than what we have time to to get into. But on in talking about one one, Van Dixhorn wrote something I I thought was it was pretty remarkable, and I I'm gonna I'm gonna read it. It's short. Let's see. Well, but it basically said, uh, "Oh, yeah." So, uh, I'm sorry. It's page four. But he says he talks about he's talking about general revelation and conscience and creation and providence. And he said, uh, for this reason, both in our evangelism and in our defense of the faith, we should always remember that Christians should never be trying to prove the existence of God to unbelievers. And I found that to be remarkable. I I don't know that I disagree with it. But often, I I mean, because I don't think he's saying what at first blush you might take it to mean. because if you think of unbelievers as either willfully or negligently, uh, you know, not believing in, in, in a creator. So that, I mean, it's just sinful man's desire not to be accountable. To me, that seems oftentimes, that's the starting point of the, right? I mean, that's the, the, the crux of the debate is often that. And so I'm. I'm not thinking that what Chad meant was. Don't, don't hesitate to. You know, dis. You know, uh, repudiate someone's. Uh, arguments with respect to the non-existence of God.
1: <laughs> right.
2: But I think what he's trying to say is somewhere in there in our human nature the, the image of god resides in everyone yes and it's not um you know and and so don't don't feel like you have to absolutely don't feel like you have to try to absolutely prove god's existence in defending the faith with with somebody who professes unbelief
0: right yeah the um uh, That's um, used to be called natural theology, the idea that uh, you would try and show certain things about the existence of God as a part of an apologetic enterprise. In the modern period, uh, uh, at least three groups have been highly suspicious of that and didn't want anything to do with the project. One of them is a group associated with Westminster Seminary in Philadelphia. And the work of Cornelius van Til. Um, the, um, the older Reformed theology would have said this um, everybody knows there's a God, that's what this chapter is saying, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Now, the question is then is there anything you can do to oppose? that suppression of the truth, to show it, to be folly. And the answer is, you can't change the heart, but the heart typically is changed in relationship to the truth. And so you should engage. And so the argument from conscience, for example, how how can there be... um, uh, right and wrong that your conscience testifies to as something that's not just an expression of who you are but it's something you feel obliged with respect to where where does that come from how can it be is it just the the, uh, the fruit of random uh, uh, matter and ma- <laughs> matter and energy and and the point is that that bothers the conscience. And it can be the occasion for thinking, well, that's right, this is idiotic for me to think that I'm the source of morality. When I feel obliged to it, it doesn't feel obliged to me. Um, so I I think there's a way of interpreting what Chad says there, but it reflects a more thoroughgoing um, Rejection of that idea—that um, such arguments are useful—as I say, the Reformed tradition since the Reformation has not thought that at all. This is a mid-twentieth-century thing. Okay. Um, but and furthermore, uh, <laughs> there's kind of a, of a revival. But when I was doing philosophy of religion in the seven late 70s and 80s, um, reform people would look at you askance completely if you thought that there was anything to natural theology. Um, today, um, well, there's just a major treatise published um, on the history of reform theology and natural theology that shows that it's un- indubitably a part of the reform tradition same is true with respect to natural law uh, the um, and van Drunen out in uh, California at Westminster there has shown that the suspicion right. about natural law is just completely out of place that the Reformed tradition has always hold held an understanding right. of natural law
2: well uh, and I think of of you know Francis Schaeffer, you know the the God who is there he is there and is not silent he, he's uh, you know, he's he's arguing for natural philosophy in the line of despair. <laughs>
0: yeah, Schaefer a, said, a, you know, Schaefer was a student of Dr. Van Til's, and Dr. Van Til wasn't entirely happy about all that Dr. Schaefer was doing. Uh, they, they thought he was not towing the party line enough. Um, but in any case, it's all... In, in many ways, it's all changing right now. It's all in flux. Okay. Good I, question. Honestly, I, just,
2: I just found that remarkable statement.
0: Good question. Statement,
2: so <laughs> I wanted to ask about
0: that. Thank yeah. You. Steve?
1: Thank you, Dave. Uh, incidentally, I'm glad to hear you affirm the role of natural law in Reformed theology. That's a current topic. As you may know, our friend Hadley Arcus just had a symposium on it. Um, I'm not sure if I'm going to ask this question right or if it's a silly or stupid question. I think we all recognize and agree that there is no new revelation in the sense that there is no purpose of God for his people in salvation for the church. I'm wondering how that extends, if it does, to the notion of personal Revelation, Um, and I and I don't mean you know, the species of Pentecostalism that says you know I'm a prophet or I can prophesy personally to your circumstances. I'm talking about, you know, in the in the in the in the Muslim world, it's it's fairly common for Muslims to say Jesus appeared to me and told me to read the New Testament. Uh, There was a famous journalist recently who said Jesus appeared to her in her hotel room and are the same thing. Is that excluded by our understanding? And one final question I one of the reasons I ask is because we don't decline to pray for somebody to be healed by God supernaturally simply because there is no there is no supernatural gift of healing. He can do what he wills. Right. Does that same principle apply in terms of God speaking to someone? someone in a way that is not contradictory to his revelation in Scripture, or
0: what? Help me out here. Um, The first thing I'd say is that um, there are very, very, very few examples uh, of that in Scripture itself. And if for no other reason than that, you'd think it must be, for some reason, awfully rare. I mean... Paul, there were many times uh, it, it, that he could have used a word or two to uh, explain a circumstance to us, and it wasn't for, for him, and it wasn't forthcoming. Uh, I mean, it just even among those who enjoyed uh, inspiration, it wasn't a regular deal that you'd get a text from God and say, you know, turn right or something like that. So that'd be a first point. The second point is um the uh the idea of the sufficiency of scripture do you remember um uh they come to Jesus and uh, uh, what they want him to uh, do some special work to Um, Mm -hmm. uh, authenticate the message of salvation from Moses Uh, and he says look if they won't believe Moses they're not going to believe somebody rising from the dead even Mm -hmm. that isn't going to have any effect on them so that would be the second thing Mm -hmm. uh I I think the analog to what you're talking about would be um, there's supernatural healing an authenticating mark and then there's healing that God is using the world and his arrangement of it. So their supernatural guidance, which is associated with special revelation, but that uh, a person attentive carefully to providence and the principles of God's word uh, and knowing themselves can be guided by that. And I I think that's an analog to such... um, uh, supernatural interventions but i i don't um the I, I would have no um trouble if i thought jesus had come into my hotel room of uh taking scrooge's line there's more about gravy than grave in you uh <laughs> <laughs> Okay, (laughs) (laughs) now then, Jason, uh, were you trying to get a word in?
2: Uh, uh, Mine was just a a comment that I found it. I was very helpful that you, um, when you did the distinction of the light of nature, being more of like the conscience of um, of people in general. Because mm. you don't really pick that up. <laughs> when you read it. Yes. Um, Dr. Van Dijkstorm kind of brought it up. But he brought it up in terms of God's image. Um, that we all share that. So that to me always conveys like a moral. Yes. Kind of thing. But yeah it was helpful that it's. You're bringing it out. It's more of like the whole person. Kind of we just know. Somehow like in our conscience. That were
0: created that kind of thing. Yes. Were, yep. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that was helpful. Yep. The uh I, I always when I <laughs> was a kid, my folks were both from Philadelphia mm-hmm. and we would drive from Washington, outside Washington where we lived. And there were no big highways then or the or the big highway was Route One, which went right through downtown Baltimore. And uh I always would look up um, what was it, the RCA Victor uh, building and on the top there was a great uh, statue of a dog and a a, a Victrola, the big the the old cone, huge cone shaped thing and the dog listening and the, the tagline was something like the sound of his master's voice or Something like that. And uh, once I got to thinking more about theology, that always came back to me as um, the... At the end of the day, we know the sound of our Master's voice. Well, we don't want to hear it, but we we know it. And uh, anyway... <laughs> um, well, um, anybody else? I think... Uh, We've made a good start here, but uh, I don't want to tax your uh, charity anymore (laughs) and try and get through the rest of the chapter. That had been my goal for this evening. But um, we'll start there next time. And uh, I'm going to only touch on one or two points. We've got eight things to, to... talk about and um, the uh, I'm only going to touch on one or two so don't expect an exposition of that so there, if there's something you're very much concerned about don't hesitate to bring that up alright well I'm, I'm looking forward to this I, I enjoy uh, teaching the confession of faith as much as anything that uh, I do because it is so rich scripturally and it opens up so much of uh, the word to us in uh, in a uh, condensed form that, uh, especially in the catechism, the wonderful definitions of terms that are found there that that bring together so many scripture texts in a coherent fashion. Um, it's a it's a great uh, thing to do, and I love helping others to be introduced to it or be reminded of it. So, looking forward to it. Let me pray for us. Father, we give you thanks uh, for this beginning. We thank you for your kind providence uh, in all the turmoil of what was taking place in the 17th century in England, that this extraordinary document should uh, be the fruit of it and should survive through the centuries uh, to be a stimulus uh, to the grasp of the great redemptive work that you've accomplished for us in Christ. And we pray that our study would be fruitful to his glory and our good. Amen.